Mr. Kip Kipinet Kipinet Kupinet Copernicus. It's Kipin. Mr. Canopyak. Thank Close you enough. for taking the time out of your uh, <laughs> busy schedule to talk to this committee about your little radio program. Well, today. It's not actually. Must uh, determine if it's kind of wholesome, <laughs> upstanding, popular entertainment that props up our cherished American values. Well, I never said it was popular, sir. Or if instead it's corrosive, subversive, downright Canadian propaganda eating away at the very fabric of what makes this country great. Is there a choice C? Your Senateness? Do you deny the smoldering chemistry between Bradley Cooper and Lady Gaga? Sir, I said that that was the one thing about that movie that worked. Did your co-host openly mock director Bernard Rose's biopic on the vilest Paganini based only on the trailer? Senator, I am willing to answer questions solely about my own conduct. Besides, I cut that bit. Do you actually think the main character in Bird Box was better developed than the main (laughs) character in A Quiet Place? You're taking that out of context. I just find the exploration of the ambivalence about parenthood more interesting than having an attractive pair of bourgeois pigs go through stale action beats. Are you now or have you ever been a co-host of Full Cast and Crew? Your senatency, I refuse to answer that question. Will you tell us the names of your co-hosts? No, sir. Will you tell us the names of your guests? I am not going to answer any questions as to my association, my philosophical or religious beliefs, or my political beliefs, or how I voted in any election. I think these are very improper questions for any American to be asked, especially under such compulsion as this. Pretty please? No. Well, let it be entered into the record that uh, Mr. Keep Intact here is a hostile witness, and I'd like to enter into evidence. Last week's episode of Full Cast Crew, which I'll get up here on my my phone, just one second if I can get this. I don't even, god damn it, where's my grandson when I need him? Well, I got, I'll, no, hang on, hang on, it's coming, all right. This hearing's adjourned until I get a new phone. Please take the witness to the Facebook Memorial Dungeon. that music means we are here to discuss 1952's High Noon. Alternate title, 420 to Yuma. <laughs> oh my God, seriously? <laughs> so you are a druggie, yeah. in addition to a communist. I don't think I have to answer that. <laughs> well, High Noon from 1952, for those who are unfamiliar, is considered one of the great American Westerns, even though, Chris, it really doesn't contain any of the elements that historically people would come to define with a Western. I certainly don't consider myself an expert. You know, what does make a Western? There's one shootout. There are no sweeping vistas. There are no, uh, there's no sense of camaraderie of riding out on the open range. We have a very claustrophobic character-based story, which of course is an allegory. In this era of Hollywood, we're actually sort of like heading into the territory that Quentin Tarantino put on screen in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah. And Gary Cooper in this movie reminded me a little bit of an older Rick Dalton, uh-huh. the Leonardo DiCaprio character. Yes. Because at this point in his life, he was 50, I think, when he made this movie. Mm-hmm. He was kind of on the downside of the 20s, 30s, and 40s when his thing was supreme in Hollywood. The quiet man. The the man who just does out on the range. Well, the man who is an actual cowboy. An actual cowboy you know, growing uh, up 
in Montana. Part of the reason why we were doing High Noon is, one, we had talked about doing a Western in general, but a couple weeks ago, you were saying specifically, I think in reference to uh, Out of Sight, which was based on an Elmore Leonard novel, Elmore Leonard who had made his bones doing Westerns, and you talked about how there's a kind of weirdness, as you put it, in Westerns. Yeah. I don't think that's just like a few Westerns here and there. That is something in the genre itself, and yeah. I was thinking about what it might be. I mean, you're absolutely right that this is an unconventional Western in mm-hmm. some ways, but it does capture a lot of the Westernness of the things that I think are probably very important, which includes the Old West as being on the frontier where the law wasn't quite settled and mm-hmm. people were pushing forward without talking too much about the people that were already there and <laughs> that treatment, but at least from the American point of view, that it was about that expansion and going into an unknown place. And making uh, it safe. And making it safe. Absolutely. Where rules are fluid, the taming influence of civilization hasn't yet been set. And I think that's why a lot of the stories take on an existential quality because there's so little around. And there's also the vastness of the space. Like you talk about the wide open vistas. That also means there's not a lot of buildings or a big societal structure around you. And I think that that lends to stories that are at their most basic and visceral, which is, I think, something that is very much part of the the Western, which is ironic, of course, considering that it's a very conservative genre. It also has this kind of arty, surreal quality. I guess in the still somewhat primal land that you're talking about, you can stage stories that take on elemental human qualities. The struggle to clean a town of some bad guys who mean to destroy the way of life, or in High Noon, fear and courage and standing for something, or selfishness or self-preservation hang on a skeleton of a story that plays by some very established conventions. And I guess in doing so, skilled writers and filmmakers and actors can come together and make something that stands the test of time, which, Mm -hmm. man, does this movie stand the test of time? I mean, just in terms of like its presence in popular culture, its popularity with multitudinous United States presidents who I guess all see themselves as some version of Gary Cooper. Yes. To read about it. (laughs) From Bill Clinton to Reagan. Yep. uh, Probably not Trump. (laughs) He says, Gary Cooper wants to be me. I read this book, which, which I should probably know the name of. Right? That's how it works if you want to give credit. Yeah, that's if you let want me, to give credit. Let me you give don't it. have to. So the book that I read, which I really recommend, it's called High Noon, The Hollywood Blacklist and the Making of an American Classic. It's by Glenn Frankel, who also mm-hmm. wrote a great book that I read about the making of The Searchers, uh-huh. which is another weird Western in its way. This book places the making of High Noon firmly amidst what was going on in Hollywood with the search for communism Mm -hmm. and the Senate committee hearings, which we spoofed in our intro. Unlike many of the people involved in the making of High Noon, I will give credit where credit is due (laughs) and say that you wrote that brilliant intro. Because ironically, for a film that is about what was going on with the committee hearings to root out Reds and communists in Hollywood, the picture, if you read at least this book, it's really the product of a collective effort, yet many of the individuals involved in the making of the film had attachments to the Communist Party and and did attend meetings and were forced to testify and paid a variety of different prices. It's kind of ironic that in the end, there was a squabble that kind of still goes on over credit. Who made High Noon? Who's responsible for this classic Western? If you read about it, and if you know about movies, of course, very rarely is any film the result of one single person's vision. But you're right, especially within the Hollywood system, the producer is a part of it, and the producer can be one of the visionaries bringing in other people who have their own skills and expertise. And so anytime you're 
have any kind of art form, everybody's going to be leaving their own stamp on it. So you have Stanley Kramer, who was the producer who had a proto-independent film studio within the studio system at a time when he had financial backing and could put into production a slate of films and was working with his then friends, chief of which was Carl Foreman, credited with the screenplay. But Carl Foreman is a really fascinating guy in this book. And all of these people in the making... Fred Zinman, the director, Carl Foreman, the screenwriter, Stanley Kramer, the producer, the editor of the film, all of them have such tangled and interesting stories connected to the House Un-American Activities Committee and their different responses to being subpoenaed to testify. Sure. And it's crazy how similar some of what we live through now, not so much politically, although there's a certain aspect of Trumpism that definitely is like, get in line or else, and state your avowed allegiance not to the country or the ideals of the country, but to our version of these stated ideals of the Mm -hmm. country. And if you don't, you are going to pay the ultimate economic price, which is you'll be blacklisted. You will not be allowed to work. But I think what the book does so great is really put that in context to why a lot of these people in Hollywood found themselves attending meetings of the Communist Party in the 20s and 30s and 40s. And how many of them sort of grew disillusioned with it and how really unserious a lot of the attendance and involvement was for many of them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, you know, go to any meeting of anything, you know, 90% of the people aren't serious. And uh, I narrated books by Howard Fast, most famous for writing the book that Spartacus' screenplay was based on. And Howard Fast was a communist from like the 20s up until sometime in the, the late 50s. And I read a whole bunch of his books that he wrote fiction and nonfiction between that time, and to see what brought him to the Communist Party, which had a lot to do with basically, you know, being a working man in the United States. Income inequality, rather like now, was a big problem. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people also came to it because it was uh, supposedly race neutral. You know, and racism was a huge, not was a huge thing, but was a huge dividing line between like the communists, you know, was saying like, we're not race conscious. Anybody, there was this idea of equality, which attracted a lot of people, yeah. as well as the, just the very, um, let's say, the the philosophy behind it, the idea of everybody being equal and helping, mm-hmm. to, which all sounds great. But it was interesting to read his books as it went on. And eventually with Stalin's purges, when he was becoming disillusioned, and then in the United States, like any other organization, it became more about preserving the organization itself and was really trying to control what the artists that were involved with it were saying, which is what led to him and a lot of people breaking from it. Right. Also, in the 50s, the fear everybody had, almost, you know, a yeah. parallel would almost be the like to immigration today. Yeah, Red you Dawn, know, they're coming. People like in Minnesota who's like, oh my gosh, the Mexicans <laughs> are swarming across the border. It's like, it's going to be a few freaking in weeks before they make it up before to they make it to Minnesota. But in the same way, the phrase, you know, seeing communists under every um, right. every bed, that's what was happening because, you know, oftentimes, like anything else, you know, there are people that do quite well by the fear being stoked. And with the fear and the House Un-American Activities Committee, where you are testifying before a Senate subcommittee and being grilled about whether or not you are now or have ever been a member of the Communist Party, it was also this moment in American history where people had to figure out where they stood. Mm -hmm. And the brilliance of the committee, the evil genius of what the committee did was in really putting a lot of weight. Like nowadays, when when we talk about this era, and even as recently, I think is 1999 or something, when the guy from On the Waterfront, Ilya Kazan, Kazan. got an honorary Mm -hmm. Oscar. Do you remember that? I do. And you remember a lot of people sat on their hands and very pointedly were not standing up because he named names. And if someone named names, that's the cancel culture of its time. You crossed a boundary that defined you as a human being. Now, the irony is 
the committee knew all the names. Through various means, they had a tremendous amount of information about people that attended meetings in Hollywood yeah. at the time. Not only that, they had connected that to you, and they knew who you knew who had attended these meetings. Right. And what they were doing was making you face this much more layered and complicated choice, I think, than just giving information that they didn't have. Well, of course, because it's more about breaking the spirit and breaking the self-respect of people. Another thing which is very prevalent today with Trump, like, for example, if you remember the very first thing Trump did when he got inaugurated was he sends uh, Sean Spicer out to lie through his teeth. You uh, mean there there wasn't that crowd, Chris? There was not that crowd. I think there's not going to do everything. But, uh, you know, analysts would say, like, then the numbers don't matter. It's And it doesn't even matter if the people hear it. It was more, it was like a loyalty thing. And the same, you know, and this comes up, of course, with the Comey thing. But, like, do you have little enough spine to go out and do this for me? And that's, mm-hmm. that's of course, what he wants in the same way that the House on american Activities Committee wanted people to you know, not yep. think for themselves, to not uh, have the kind of spine to push back at them. Right. It was not about the information, which leads, you know, to such an interesting thing about this movie, because like you said, people all across the political spectrum have uh, identified with High Noon, yep. and everybody wants to. And were involved in the making, and, you know, I mean, you had a conservative Republican in Gary Cooper, who's the embodiment of High right. Noon. But but then you have, you know, the question is, like, what is it actually about? Mm-hmm. And according to the director, and again, not getting ahead of ourselves, but it's that choice, that humanistic choice of, like, what will you stand up for? How will you, you know, what is your principle? Will you be ruled by fear? That becomes enough of a, a very human thing that it can be abstracted so that anywhere on the political spectrum, you can see yourself in that choice because it's a choice that that we're all having to make. Absolutely. But let's not give that to Fred Zinman as the director. I really think that belongs to Carl Foreman as the screenwriter, because I think as Carl Foreman was writing this screenplay, he himself was facing this choice. He himself had to go before the committee on two occasions, one just before the making of this film, and then once again later in his life as he came back to Hollywood mm-hmm. and tried to cooperate enough to be allowed to work again. Mm-hmm. Because, of course, the studios had all made sure they could have essentially a system by which the government would stamp your approval to right. return to work after you had done enough. And for some people, doing enough meant naming a lot of names. For other people, they didn't have to do that. It just depended, much like anything in American society, really on how good your lawyer was yeah. and, and yeah. how much you could spend on a lawyer who was connected enough to the political establishment to be able to go in and say, hey, listen, with Chris here, you know, he's a good man. He, yes, he attended some meetings. He's willing to do yeah. he, he, his thing is he's just not going to name any of the names, but he will come before you and he will tell you about his disillusionment with the Communist Party and he'll do this and he'll do that. And if he does that, is that enough? And for some people, that was enough. And right. They were allowed to go back to work. As Carl Foreman was writing the screenplay, he realized this is about me. Right. I am the Gary Cooper character. I am facing the outlaws in the committee who are mm-hmm. coming to try and kill me in terms of killing his career and his ability to work. And Many of his friends and co-workers, including Stanley Kramer, abandoned him in that moment. Of course, it's more nuanced than that. And it's human. It's messy. It's in the middle. It's gray area. With, you know, something which is also in the movie yes. as well. You know, and that's yes. one of the things, again, that makes it, that does make it great. You know, it's funny. You read this whole book. I listened to a lecture that the author gave where he, you know, talks about some of the highlights, yep. but I'm sure you get much more nuance. And I read first about the director, then about the writer. And then I got to Stanley Kramer yep. third. So by the time I got to reading about Stanley Kramer, I was like, fuck him. Yes. That fucker. <laughs> you know, I, you know, I just assume, you know, yeah. but on the other way, if you read from Stanley Kramer's point of view, it's like, look, 
I, I was a liberal too. And like, yeah. I wanted to, he had been, you know, as, as Wikipedia puts it, but I'm sure they're quoting something else, uh, associated with message films. You know, mm -hmm. and he did do a lot of things. He made friggin' the defiant ones. You yeah. know, he was progressive. And so I'm sure if I had read about Stanley Kramer first, I would have been like, ah, that Carl Foreman, you know, yeah. it's all his fault. He's the one. I bet Stanley Kramer's right that Carl Foreman was trying to blackmail him, you know, but mm -hmm. but the one, you know, you get the first impression of one. And so you kind of, I can't help but carry that over when reading about the story, which, like you said, is more messy than anything else. Carl Foreman, at one point, he willingly signed over his credit to Stanley Kramer mm -hmm. in order to allow kind of what Stanley Kramer was doing to continue forward. So, of course, then later on, once the movie came out, of course, everyone then began to scramble for uh, their fair share. Success has a thousand followers. It really does. That's what's amazing about not only this movie to me, but the making of story, how much any movie is a product of a collective opportunity. But of course, Stanley Kramer, you have to say, I mean, without him setting up in motion this opportunity, then none of the people could have done what they were doing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But Stanley Kramer also did, at least in my reading. Certainly the book is a little bit more in favor of Carl Foreman's actions throughout the HUAC era than Stanley Kramer's. But it's hard not to see the abandonment and to understand how fundamental it was for people that did these things. I think Stanley Kramer would kind of say like, well, you did go to, you did, mm -hmm. you were a member of the Communist Party. You, you did go to these meetings. So if that's what they want to hear, you should go tell them that so we can get back to doing what we want to do here. And of course, it wasn't that simple for everybody. Another way to put it is like, sure, everybody might be standing on principle. They just see different principles. Right. You know, and somebody who on the more conservative side of the, you know, somebody like Gary Cooper or Jimmy Stewart, people yeah. who were friendly witnesses in front of Huac. Or John Wayne. Well, <laughs> he's his own he's his own kettle of fish. But, but fascinatingly, we'll get to that. But but these are people who who like for them that the yeah. patriotism, let's say, yeah. is the higher principle. Whereas for somebody else, the let's say the individualism is the higher. You principle. mean being allowed to go back to work and make money? Because I, mean, I think a lot of the people that that cooperated did so because. It was the only route they had to go back to work. Sure, 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 right. But I, I think it's not impossible to think that some of these people, and perhaps it has to do with the time, that there are some people who really do, do see a different principle as well. That they were like, I'm. this isn't an issue for me because I actually, I think of myself as a, you know, as, again, for lack of a better word, as a patriot. And right. thinking that, that my duty is to the government yes. as opposed sure. to my own individuality. Yeah, of course, you can't separate it. And I'm sure there's a certain amount of system. Right. But on the other hand, as you said, Foreman himself, he really did try. He's like, what do I got to do to yeah. uh, stay in this country and make movies? Like, I'll do it. Yeah. But they, there, there was a point past which he would not go. I don't know of the people that refused to clap or stand up during the honorary Oscar like for- Nick Nolte and Ed Harris. I mean, yeah, I don't know remember. how deep their understanding of this stuff goes. But reading the book that I read, I can understand not standing up and applauding because it's not that simple, even for the people who did name names. So in the movie- I think what's great about the movie, and I wanted to ask you this in general with movies, because I also saw Joker recently and I had a similar experience. When you go into a movie, do you have that moment where you're watching it and you're absorbed, but you're sort of self-aware enough to say like, is this great? And there's, is there a moment in the watching when you are confirmed that it is great or that it's not? Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. When I was watching High Noon, it builds to this amazing final 17, 18 minute set piece. And when it all came together in the end, I was like, wow, this is a great piece of filmmaking. But as I was watching it through the beginning parts, it's hard with modern eyes to look at some acting that is not 
modern. It's not right. naturalistic. And Gary Cooper, who apparently his whole life was very uncertain about his own worthiness as an actor and never felt confident and always felt like a kid from Montana who could ride a horse and shoot a gun and, and look convincing in Western yeah. wear and lucked into this career. Yet, I was just thinking about that in terms of Joker and this movie, both movies where there were moments where I was like, it is a masterpiece. Yeah, sometimes th- with something like High Noon, for example, I think because the first time I watched it, because I only watched it for the first time this week, there was so much baggage going with it that actually watching it the first time through, I was so conscious of the greatness putting onto it that I was like, eh, you know. Yeah. And then I watched it again, just because I sort of had time and, and I was thinking, I was like, I think I might've been missing something. And it's only 84 minutes, it's thank only you. It's 84 might as well. Uh, but boy, it was a lot better on that second viewing, I think because I'd sort of flushed through yeah. the consciousness of, is it great, isn't it great? And then could really just be affected by it. And yeah. actually Gary Cooper's performance, which at first I was, I had all sorts of jokes laid out. Yeah. But it really is, it was much better and much subtler. And people would talk, I think it was Lloyd Bridges had an anecdote where he was saying like, there were sometimes I would do a shot with him and I'd be like, that's it? You're going to print that? And then looking back at it later, I'd be like, oh my gosh, there was so much more going on yeah. th- that you can see on camera, but the, that he couldn't see in real life. Uh, so like with Joker, that also, because there was so much written about it beforehand and so much, there seemed to be almost like a political side taken yes. by a lot of people before having seen yeah. it. And in its own way is as much a movie about the time we're living in and as much a takedown of the entertainment establishment as High Noon is. I think so, yeah. You yes. know, in kind of a fascinating way, it's connected. So I think when it ended, I was like, I was sort of unsure about it, but I've been thinking about it a lot since then. Joker sort of or realized, High Noon? Sorry, Joker. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's like, I haven't seen it twice in the same way that I've yeah. High Noon, but at least thinking about it, you know, almost does the same thing of realizing yes. like there's a lot going on in there. And, I, and so to be worried about greatness while watching it is usually a sign that it probably isn't. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's like wondering whether or not you have a problem with alcohol. Yeah. <laughs> if you're sitting around spending any time thinking about it, you probably do. I hate to break it to you. Not you, Chris, not judging from your social media posts, but you do seem to go out and drink a lot of beers with the guys. Well, it's a social lubricant. Also, speaking of drinking, I wanted to consult a text about how people actually lived in the West. It continues to bother me in every Western. (laughs) Drinking shot glasses of liquor in a bar is not the most efficient way to consume liquor. In every Western, you get a bottle and you get a shot glass and the hero or the bad guy or anybody... They just drink little shot glasses and then pour another one and drink that and then pour another one. Uh I mean, when was the highball glass invented and put into use in American drinking culture? That's what I want to know. Or was it a genius move to say, like, it's a quarter a shot and you're going to drink 12 of them. So you're going to pay me so much more money than just to buy the bottle. Or was glassware not in? I just don't know. I need to know more about glassware in the American West. And I'm sure someone somewhere wrote like a Ph.D. thesis about this. Here's my guess without having given it too much thought. You know, most of the liquor they were drinking was like 90 percent acorns and like saddle (laughs) dust. Like, I'm sure it all no, it was probably 90% alcohol. It's probably like poison. Yeah, but made, I'm sure it tasted terrible is, is what I'm getting at. So I think like- But if you're going to drink four or five shots of it, just put it in a one glass. Why consume Because that it's easier con- to like do it little by little. Oh. That way you don't have to actually taste it. For me, oh, highball glass, that seems like that's sipping. That's if it's something that's good. In seriousness, I wonder if that's a filmic trope because it looks cool. You do it, you slam the glass down. Like, is that why it became a thing? It's something I want to, it's a rabbit hole I want to yeah, get down. Yeah, sure. And I bet you there's some information there. Anybody who's doing a Western now has no idea. But you go back a generation or two, somebody must, somebody knew. Well, let's watch a little clip from High Noon. This is one of the early scenes with Gary Cooper and his co-star Grace Kelly, 
What a movie star. The camera loves her. She has a radiance. She has an intonation that's so different than anybody yes. else on screen. And this was like one of her very first film roles. Yes. You know, I was reading a little bit about her and this was not her best performance. I think a lot of people were not she totally didn't impressed. think it was. She didn't think it was. But I think also a lot of people pretty were not good. But she grew, well, also Hitchcock was saying that, though, of course, he was like, her best performances were the ones in my movies. Yeah. But it was interesting to think of, she is so stunning and, and magnetic, and she kind of stuck with it over the, you know, she had a career that lasted only five years. Mm-hmm. Um, but to see her sort of work at it and get better. Yeah. Because by the end, by her later films, people were like, were thinking that she was giving amazing performances. Yes. And again, obviously, once, you, once you're doing leads, you kind of can do more. But I thought it was very interesting to think of how that perception did change and and how much of it had to do with somebody being willing to work and uh, gain experience. And she's talking about, you know, stepping onto this film set with, at the time, a worldwide icon of American masculinity acting. He's one of the biggest movie stars in the world and has been so for 20 years. It was like Um, the me from the 50s, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, here's the ultimatum scene. Please, Will. If you just tell me what this is all about. I sent a man up five years ago for murder. He was supposed to hang. But up north, they commuted it to life. Now he's free. I don't know how. Anyway, it looks like he's coming back. I still don't understand. He's a... Well, he was always wild, kind of crazy. He'll, he'll probably make trouble. But that's no concern of yours, not anymore. I'm the one who sent him up. Well, that was part of your job. That's finished now. They've got a new marshal. Won't be here till tomorrow. Seems to me I've got to stay. Anyway, I'm the same man with or without this. Well, that isn't so. I expect he'll come looking for me. Three of his old bunch are waiting at the depot. That's exactly why we ought to go. They'll just come after us. Four of them. We'd be all alone on the prairie. We've got an hour. What's an hour? Oh, we could What's a hundred miles? We'd never be able to keep that store, Amy. They'd come after us and we'd have to run again as long as we live. No, we wouldn't. Not if they didn't know where to find us. Oh, Will. Well, I'm begging you, please, let's go. I can't. Don't try to be a hero. You don't have to be a hero. Not for me. I'm not trying to be a hero. If you think I like this, you're crazy. Look, Amy, this is my town. I've got friends here. I'll swear in a bunch of special deputies, and with a posse behind me, maybe there won't even be any trouble. You know there'll be trouble. Then it's better to have it here. I'm sorry, honey. I I know how you feel about it. Do you? Of course I do. I know it's against your religion, though. Sure, I know how you feel. But you're doing it just the same. Oh, Will. We were married just a few minutes ago. We've got our whole lives ahead of us. Doesn't that mean anything to you? You know, I've only got an hour and I've got lots to do. Stay at the hotel until it's over. No, I won't be here when it's over. You're asking me to wait an hour to find out if I'm going to be a wife or a widow. I say it's too long to wait. I won't do it. Amy. I mean it. If you won't go with me now, I'll be on that train when it leaves here. I've got to stay. I was thinking, watching the clips and preparing for the podcast, most of what's great about the acting is not the verbal part. 
It's the body language. It's the use of eyes. It's the glances, which is really subtle for a movie of this type at this era. Cooper there, like you could listen to that and people probably are listening to it and they're going, ah, it sounds kind of wooden. Yet his face and his commitment to feeling fear, but knowing what he has to do. And he's also not stopping down to make a grand speech about why he needs to be understood. He knows he's just got to get on with it because you have this great device of the movie unfolding in real time. And that's just so great to me. Yeah. Like he he does that so amazingly well. And she does too. Like I think the first close-up of him in this scene is when he says, You think I like this? Yes. That's such the whole underpinning of him as a character. The Western was already a pretty old genre at this time and, and mm-hmm. still was popular for a long time. And there's been so many lesser Westerns that the idea of the strong, silent type of this hero who is conscious of their own heroism or and likes it. That is not who this man is. And that's Mm -hmm. in some ways the caricature of what Gary Cooper's persona would be. But no, he's like, no, I don't like this. I'm not into that. I don't want to do this, but I have to. Yeah. It's not self-congratulatory. It's not self-mythologizing. It's very real in that way. Yeah. Like you said, the acting is much better when you see it. But boy, that's a pretty good scene in terms of the words as well. They both make good points. And again, it becomes... What principle is the important one? For her, it's nonviolence. It's it's also getting away and starting a new life. For him, it's protecting this town, which, yes, nobody else really, not just the very fact that nobody get, like comes, there's, who's the character that says at one point, it's like, this is just another like yeah. mud ball town. Like, why do you care yeah. so much about it? I think that your signature openings get appropriate amount of attention. I don't think, however, that your signature endings get enough. I think we need to center them in the narrative of the podcast. So I'll cut it back into the center. What Chris does is he plays the last line of dialogue from a famous or infamous or known or slightly well-known film. And what we want you to do is be first to figure out what it was. When the episode goes up, we'll put up a image from the film that you're talking about that doesn't give it away. And we will say, who can identify? Identify Chris's final line from this week's episode. I love that. that I think that's great. Do that on Facebook. Facebook finally has a reason for being. His face as he's abandoned one by one by everyone is tearing down of the Gary Cooper myth. When I was using the term like wanting to watch a weird Western, Mm -hmm. that to me is what I'm after. I'm not after a John Wayne barging through the barroom doors and immediately taking entire command of the movie, the scene. Right. And you just know all the bad guys are going to be dead and it's going to happen the way it's going to happen. He has no fear. He would never express that. That would be unmanly, un-American. That Western trope is not on display and is therefore that much closer to real human reality, which is you're listening to her saying like, let's go. Let's get out of here. You did your service. You've done your part. This is not your job or your responsibility anymore. And you're like, part of you is sort of like, yeah, get in the cart and go with her. Right. But he's aware that may seem to be the easy solution. And I think for Carl Foreman as a screenwriter, the easy solution at the time could have been to either testify and give them what they want, name the names and assume that that's going to make everything go away. But he's also writing from the perspective of an awareness that that's not going to solve everything. And that's a good, that's made in that scene as well. He's like, you know, a hundred miles will make, they will come find us anyway. And that's, that's a good point. And it's a very practical, non-principled reason to resist. When are they going to stop? You know, if they take a little, back to the Sean Spicer thing. When are you going to start? There's a sentence I never thought I'd hear again. (laughs) 
when does it stop? At some point, it has to, and un- un- otherwise, you're eaten away entirely. What's amazing about the Gary Cooper character in the movie is that he is afraid. He doesn't want to do it, and his woundedness as he moves throughout the town and tries to rally people to him is just the simple right thing to do. Right. It's very human, and he makes it his his vulnerability. Yes. Uh, which he always had a lifelong vulnerability about his own acting ability, shows that he kind of knew what was up. I mean, he wasn't fooled yeah. by the system that he was in, even as he was a part of it, which I think is also part of the allegory between communism and the whole environment in which the movie was made. Gary Cooper himself was a really good ally to Carl Foreman throughout the whole process, even though his politics were completely the opposite right. of Carl Foreman's. And you get the sense that that was because Carl Foreman was probably a pretty good guy. And mm-hmm. I think that was what was important to Gary Cooper. Here's another scene in the bar room after Cooper gets word that the man he put away in prison is returning to the town. He goes to the bar on a Sunday to try and rally a posse. I guess you all know why I'm here. I need deputies. I'll take all I can get. You must be crazy coming in here to raise a posse. Frank's got friends in this room. You ought to know that. Some of you were special deputies when we broke this bunch. I need you again. Now. Things were different then, Kane. You had six steady deputies to start off with. Everyone a top gun. You ain't got but two now. You ain't got two. Harpel here says he just quit. Why? That's between the two of us. You're asking an awful lot, Kane, considering the kind of man Frank Miller is. All right. We all know what Miller's like. That's why I'm here. How about it? What's great also in the characterization is the deputy played by Lloyd Bridges. In that moment, Gary Cooper could, we know as viewers, pretty much out this guy as the selfish, lily-livered coward that he really is, who is refusing to help Gary Cooper because he wants his job. Mm -hmm. And he's previously made an offer to him to say, like, I'll go out there with you, but you've got to tell them I'm the new marshal, not the guy that's coming into town. And Gary Cooper says, well, that's not what the town fathers. That's not what they've decided. But he doesn't say that. He doesn't out him in the moment in the bar. And that's the principled stand of the man, allowing us as viewers to know that he has this information but doesn't use it. Such a great cutaway to him as he looks at him. He says, that's between him and me. At the same time, just not that I necessarily agree with this, but the scene where we played it, some guy who's saying like, look, who's going to go with you? You used to have six deputies. When you had like actual deputies, then maybe we can fill in the background or whatever. But now that you've lost all of them, which then this becomes an issue, you know, get to think of what's happening currently. There are a lot of people who criticize, for example, General Mattis Mm -hmm. for leaving the Trump administration for winking and being like, well, everybody knows that this guy's crazy, Mm -hmm. but not actually going out to say like, Mm -hmm. this man is insane and has done X, Y, and Z. Yes, there's a principle for not outing Harv, Mm -hmm. but an argument could be made if it's so important to protect the town and protect the people that maybe outing the guy and saying like, listen, the reason I don't have six deputies is because I will not bend to this kind of blackmail. Is there, like I said, I don't, I don't really think that, that mm-hmm. it is just because the rest of but there's an interesting philosophical idea of like, is it worth his retaining that principle of protecting Harv in a way that actually sacrifices his ability to raise the posse, not to protect himself, but to protect the town? I don't know. I mean, I, I sort of take it that a lot of what is in 
the screenwriter's mind at the time is that it's a bunch of words, it's a bunch of talk, and it's about how talk can either help or harm us. Really, you're talking about a construct in which someone is asking someone questions and that person is going to say something that's going to be used against them and others. And I think in using Gary Cooper in that moment, there's the device of the movie unfolding in real time. So there is the sense he doesn't really have time to get into it and explain to everybody all the nuances of, well, you see, I used to date Helen Ramirez and now (laughs) my deputy dated her, but she's still kind of in love with me. And we shared something special that she doesn't actually share with him. And he's kind of aware of that, even though he can't give voice to it. So of course that's why he, you know, but in another way, it's setting the Gary Cooper character up as a man of action. He's not someone who talks his way to a result. But he doesn't just do in the way of a John Wayne pulling a gun and blowing Mm -hmm. your head off. There's a lot of times in the movie where you're kind of like, if you just explain yourself here, they'll get it. But he also sort of embodies this wounded reality that once the person says the thing they've said to him, there's always these cutaways to Gary Cooper where you see in his eyes the pain of the understanding that this person has just left him. And it doesn't matter what he does or says after that. Right. And it doesn't matter the reason. You know, there's the the one guy who at first says he's going to be a part of it. But then when he finds out there's nobody else, he's like, eh, you know what? Yeah. (laughs) I'm going to leave. And that's the one that I remember the close-up on Gary Cooper and the the, the or the one with his mentor, anger. the old Marshall, yeah. was another really played by Lon one. Chaney. Who was Lon only, Chaney Jr. Only five years older than him. Wow, at the they, time. people aged a lot. A lot of those guys in that era didn't live to sixty. A lot of the Western stars of Gary Cooper's age and generation. You can hear the smoking in his voice, that mahogany voice. They just you know this yeah. is the era where everyone is chain smoking unfiltered cigarettes twenty four seven. And that just killed a lot of people in the industry. By the end of 1960, Humphrey Bogart, Clark Gable, Tyrone Power, and Errol Flynn were all dead from heart disease or cancer. None of them made it to age 60. These guys literally all smoked themselves to death. There was also guys who were falling off of horses and falling out of (laughs) buildings and getting shot and stuff like that. But no, it's the smoking that killed them. The director, Fred Zinman, who, when I think of Fred Zinman, I think of Day of the Jackal. Right. What do you think of when you think of Fred Zinman? I, I think of I want to see Day of the Jackal because I haven't seen it. Oh, I think the haven't? only thing prior to, oh, to this I've seen is A Man for All Seasons. I haven't uh, seen that. It looks so over the top and amazing and Technicolor. Yeah. Is it good? Yeah. I mean, it's really good. I mean, um, I saw it like in, in high school, like in a class. But another thorny philosophical thing of where does principle end and practicality mm-hmm. begin? Reading about him, I was fascinated. And I yeah, think you're 100% right that the screenplay is what makes it. And yet Zinman himself, it was interesting to read about him. You know, he was also a European emigre. Yep. He had studied to be a lawyer before coming to film, which you almost see there's almost like a distanced quality to it as if... Like he came to it out of mm-hmm. passion. I think the fact that he came to it later is something yeah. that's very good. The overlap between politics and philosophy, mm-hmm. Foreman brings the politics, but Zinman brought the philosophy. There was a quote that I liked very much where he wrote, I just like to do films that are positive in the sense that they deal with the dignity of human beings and have something to say about oppression, not necessarily in a political way, but in a human way. Mm-hmm. I have to feel what I'm trying to do is worthwhile. And I think this is what makes this movie almost like invasion of the body snatchers, you can graft any sort of politics or any metaphor onto it because there is something very humanistic and very basic about this idea of somebody standing up for a principle against the crowd or against danger. And I think that comes because he's looking at it There's nothing wrong with politics or making political art. And yet, if it doesn't have something a little bit deeper underneath it, it can become very brittle and that wouldn't work nearly as well. Fred Zinman's thing, as stated by him, was movies about loners 
on a mission to do something great. And by great, I can mean not necessarily something positive. In Day of the Jackal, the loner is the sniper who is trying to assassinate Charles de Gaulle. When I think of Fred Zimmerman, I think of Day of the Jackal, which is such a 70s movie to me, mm-hmm. um, even though it's probably from the 60s and not the 70s. You know, it's long. It's allowed the room to develop. It's a character study. It's not a flashy movie in any way, but uh-huh. it's great. I mean, that's what I think of. So then when I saw this, which in the Zinman filmography, I'm trying to see how far back. So he started doing things in, he worked in Hollywood shorts. Yeah, he was a feature director in the late 40s, I guess. Mm-hmm. You know, his best known film is probably From Here to Eternity. Mm-hmm. Oklahoma. Very famous films. And yet it's Julia, a name that I wasn't, the other day. Um, it's a name that I didn't really think of. But of course, this is a pre-New Hollywood thing where even if a director was an auteur in, in terms of having a vision or, or mm-hmm. being skilled, it wasn't kind of marketed or, right. or seen in the same way. Once it approaches this end part, this 17, 18 minutes of almost wordless filmmaking, once the bad guys arrive in town, it's really incredible. And it takes on an artifice in some ways that it didn't have before. There's the famous crane shot, which I think is probably the most famous shot in the movie where Gary Cooper is standing by himself in a deserted town and the camera moves up and away from him to accentuate his isolation. And funny enough, the only reason that shot is in the movie is Fred Zinman had a friend filming on a nearby lot who had a crane uh-huh. and wasn't going to use it for one of the days. And Fred was like, can I borrow your crane? Yeah. And that gave them the most iconic shot in the That's movie. Amazing. It's funny you mentioned that shot because I was very struck. There's almost a reverse of it after the last of the Miller boys is killed. And he is standing alone, and then all the people who didn't want any part of him before, you see them stream out towards him. And in a lesser movie, he would have made a speech right there. Yeah. About how you all abandoned me in this town, but it doesn't matter because the right thing was done, and we can all now live together. But he doesn't say a word. Yeah. He just takes off his star, throws it in the dirt, gets on the carriage with Amy, and leaves town. Yeah. Um, which is an amazing choice. You know, I'm, he, I'm did, sort of, he doesn't say via con Dios. <laughs> no. Or anything like no. that. Which, that's that's a, which that's you cool. would think that somebody who throws their badge on the ground, that they would say that. I don't know what you're referring to. Is that Point a, break. Like, oh. oh you, <laughs> I was so conscious when watching it. I was like, wow, uh, how far we have fallen that this <laughs> image then becomes co-opted for point break. Via con Dios, bro. <laughs> God. You know, Chris, Today is the day that our Out of Sight episode was released, but you're being taken to task already on oh, the, the show's Facebook page for not appreciating Out of Sight. Uh, who's wrong? Um, who's wrong? <laughs> well, you're wrong, <laughs> but the friend of yours that's pointing out your wrongness is Rebecca. Oh, what is Rebecca now? She, she says you better get like taped up. It sounds like there's a fight going or something. I don't know. <laughs> Apparently, she's a huge Out of Sight out fan. Of sight fan. No. Well... She it says, ain't Shakespeare. We Becca. are going to have a long talk. <laughs> tape up. That's what she says. Tape up. Sounds like a bare knuckle brawl. That's it. Well, I mean, tape knuckle brawl, but uh, <laughs> just because I have delicate skin. So we mentioned Lloyd Bridges. I think one of his first film roles as well. Yes. So well used as the impetuous, immature deputy who is now dating the marshal's old girlfriend and Mrs. covets. Rumi. The, the Marshal's job, Mrs. Yes. Ramirez, played by the great Mexican actress Katie Dorado, who yes. had had a lot of film credits prior to working in Hollywood. 
there's a funny anecdote where they talk about they didn't really understand the degree to which she could speak English prior to casting her in the movie. Uh-huh. And they kind of got on the set and they filmed some of these initial scenes. She has three main dialogue scenes, one with Harvey Pell, one with Gary Cooper, and one with Amy, mm-hmm. which is a really fascinating scene. And it was a moment, it's like in a moment in a film where, you know, you could imagine a lot of people dumping out of the choice. This is She's not working. We can't mm-hmm. really understand her. Luckily, they didn't. You're going to hear this scene. Maybe you'll be taken with it in terms of how it sounds. Maybe you won't. But for me, when I watch it, it's her body language in this scene with him that's so fascinating. And also, how atypically feminist the movie is. Yes. The women are really the only ones who speak truth to the moments that they're in. This scene is where Helen is preparing to leave town. And I like the complication of her relationship with the marshal, where they used to be lovers, they're not anymore. But it's clear that there's something that binds them together that's almost different than even what binds him to his wife. Like, that's allowed to play in the scene he has with her. This is where she's leaving in the impetuous young deputy played by a very young, fresh-faced Lloyd Bridges is trying to prevent her from going. Come in, son. You're leaving town. Where are you going? I don't know you. That doesn't make much sense. You're afraid, huh? Afraid of Miller? No. Sure you are. You wouldn't be running. You got nothing to be worried about as long as I'm around. You know that. I'm not a scared of Miller. I'll take him on any time. I believe you. And where are you going? Cutting out with Kane. Oh, Harvey. And why are you going? What difference does it make? It's Kane. It's Kane. I know it's Kane. It isn't Kane. But I'm going to tell you something about you and your friend Kane. You're a good looking boy. You have big, broad shoulders. But he is a man. It takes more than big, broad shoulders to make a man, Harvey. And you have a long way to go. You know something? I don't think you will ever make it. Let me tell you something. You're not going anywhere. You're staying here with me. It's going to be just like it was before. You want to know why I'm leaving? Then listen. Cain will be a dead man in half an hour, and nobody's going to do anything about it. And when he dies, this town dies too. I can feel it. I am all alone in the world. I have to make a living. So I'm going someplace else. That's all. And as for you, I don't like anybody to put his hands on me unless I want him to. And I don't like you to anymore. That's a really amazing scene for 1952. She is quite a character. Like Gary Cooper, there is so much visually that's happening. You can see see an intensity in her eyes, an anger, a frustration, Mm -hmm. and a pragmatic intelligence. And and what she actually does say, that's pretty heady stuff. And she also embodies such a complicated contradiction in fleeing, in going. Her going, to me, is unlike the leaving of other people in the movie, although she is leaving. And in fact, there's a scene where she and Amy ride off together, and the marshal is stumbling out and sees them leaving him. One dressed all in black, one dressed all in white. It's as if he's losing everybody, both sides of the spectrum. You know, there's 
Grace Kelly, her character is a Quaker. Yes. And I think her hatred of violence, which again, yes. we find out besides the religion that there's a personal- Her father, uh, her brother were killed were in gun killed. violence. So you have that ethereal or mm-hmm. more philosophical difference right. versus Mrs. Ramirez, who's very practical. And yep. she's like, look, this town will have nothing. She doesn't feel like she could stay or make a living as a Mexican woman in the United States. She had enough problems as it was. And she knows that men- will kill and harm and ruin. And for her, who has no one, the implication without reducing it by romance, as she says, Cain is a man, is somebody who is principled. You are a boy and you probably won't be. But the fact is the principled man, he's going to die. There's no way that he will win. He will die on his principles. And so that's why she's going to up and leave. And the deputy character tries to possess her. He invades her space and he plants a kiss on her and she's unresponsive. I was waiting for him to hit hit her in a movie of this era. I felt that tension building when she rejected him. But like you said, it's a better movie than that because I think you you get the extension of that with, I don't want to jump too far, but the next step of Harvey's thing is he tries to get, he tries to help Kane leave. Yeah. He wants him to leave. And I I loved that scene too, because he just wants Kane to leave because Kane's very staying and sticking to principle and his caring, his very existence is condemnation of Harvey's weakness and all of the reasons why he was not made Marshall himself. He thinks there's a shortcut to becoming the man. And she's so aware that there isn't one. You either are or you are not. Or if if you're looking for a shortcut, you're going the wrong way. Like the only way to do it is to actually be principled, to be a man. Here's her scene with Kane, their former lovers. It's an amazing scene because on her part, there's an anger that's still present. So you get kind of the sense that he's the one that broke off the relationship I think what's amazing about Katie Gerardo in this movie is underneath her anger, she's able to convey that wounded love that's still Mm -hmm. there. There's still a connection between her and Kane. And in this scene, he's stopping by her room at the local hotel to tell her to get out of town before her other former boyfriend comes back to kill Kane and maybe even her. What are you looking at? You think I have changed? Well, what do you want? You want me to help you? You want me to ask Fran to let you go? You want me to beg for you? Well, I would not do it. I would not lift a finger for you. I came to tell you he was coming. I should have figured you'd know about it. I know about it. I think you ought to get out of town. I might not be able to, well, anything can happen. I'm not afraid of him. I know you're not, but you, you know how he is. I know how he is. Maybe he doesn't know. He's probably got letters. Probably. Nothing in life is free. I'm getting out. I'm packing now. That's good. Un año sin ver. Okay. If you're smart, you will get out too. I can't. I know. The way she raises her hand right at the end of this scene as he's going out the door. 
that's just great direction and great editing. She goes to clutch him. She goes to go to him. But of course, he's already out the door. Right. I meant to look this up. What does she say to him in Spanish? And what does he say back to her? Oh, I read that. It's something like we haven't spoken in a year. And yeah, I know, or something like that. Wow. That's also great that they allow the use of language to allow them to have a private moment. It's also such an interesting character. The acknowledgement of his principle and of his being a man, but still being frustrated. It's that final exchange of if you're smart, you'll go. I can't. But the fact that she's able to say, I know, Mm -hmm. there's a a scene later when he's like, why does everybody want me to leave? The fascinating thing of his moral stance, which looks crazy to literally everybody else in the movie. Nobody else understands. And I think that that's such an interesting dynamic because, again, it undercuts the heroism in a way that I think makes it more about the principle. Well, I also think it's Carl Foreman understanding that there is understanding on both sides of these conversations. So when she says, I know. I think what he's doing is using the screenplay to put in a little understanding that he wasn't getting from the people that surrounded him. Yes. You can write a screenplay and create a wishful thinking environment where someone understands what you're wrestling with. In Carl Foreman's actual life, unfortunately, he didn't really get any subtlety. He just simply got cut out of the company, had to leave the country. Yeah. And then in an even further kick up the ass from the State Department, had his and his family's passports revoked while he was in London. Right, so he couldn't come back? Couldn't even go work in another country when he had, oh, he had work even, opportunities yeah, in Italy or somewhere else. He couldn't leave England because he had no travel documents. So he was literally just isolated. And another reminder of today, what actually happened was over time, the judicial branch of government said, hey, wait a minute, that's going uh-huh. a little too far. You got to allow these people to have their passports. And those were returned and people were allowed to travel. I see. So, oh, wow. Do you remember how many years it was? It how was long? a couple years. Yeah. Justice was not swift or speedy. Uh, but eventually, through either the Supreme Court or some case, it was ruled that you can't do that. Right. You can maybe prevent them from working or have a blacklist formal or informal, but you can't take an American citizen's right to travel away from them. And again, why why could you? Why would you, of course, is simply to make an example of a person, to exactly. try to break them. What's interesting about the HUAC situation is when McCarthy got involved later in the life of the hearings, mm-hmm. he took it too far by going into the system itself. Yes. It right. was it was his exploration into Republicans and into other branches of government where they were where the, in the State Department. The system and, yeah. itself finally said, hey, wait a minute. That's okay to do that to all those pinko commies out in Hollywood, but yeah. don't come around here. Everybody uh, associates McCarthy with it, but this had been going on for years. Yeah. The Hollywood 10 were all blacklisted in 47. Mm-hmm. And this was being made, let's, you know, came out in 52. So let's say between 50. Yeah. So it was already three years. Yeah. Know, so this was not an abstract thing. I just want to mention the score was unique for its time. Mm-hmm. Dmitry Tiomkin composed the music for the main title. The words were written by someone else, and the song was performed by Tex Ritter, Chris. Color me dumb. I had no idea Tex Ritter was the father of John Ritter. I didn't either. And, and the cinematographer's son is David Crosby. So all, all these familiar faces. David Crosby from Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. His father was the cinematographer. And actually did a wonderful job. Did a you great know, job. You know, we talked in the beginning about one of the things that characterizes Westerns is the wide open vistas. And depending on what year, the technicolor beauty of that sort of thing. And this was the exact opposite. Yeah. Floyd Crosby, who was the cinematographer yes. who had worked with Zinneman a lot, 
as they put it, shot without filters, giving the landscape a harsh newsreel quality that clashed with the more painterly cinematography of John Ford's westerns. Mm -hmm. That's from the book Fred Zinneman and the Cinema of Resistance. And it makes such a huge difference. I have to admit, I'm somebody, when we talked about Out of Sight last week, yeah. when saying about it can be frustrating sometimes when a prison is so overdone, you check out because it just doesn't yeah. seem realistic. So too, sometimes with westerns and stuff, it can be either too dirty, too gritty, or it can be too idyllic. Yeah. And this, I think because of, as they put it, the newsreel quality of just the mm-hmm. the simplicity of the way that it was photographed, it just seemed very real in a way that heightened the tension. I thought it looked fantastic. And it's also one of the first times, I guess, in a movie that they repeated this musical sequence throughout the film to use it as a theme um, and became a big hit for Tex Ritter. The movie opens with that thumping sound. Which is very different from a lot of other westerns, which mm-hmm. have more orchestral scores. Sure. And you see this lone cowboy, as it turns out, who has no lines throughout the whole movie, Lee Van Cleef. <laughs> Lee Van Cleef's first movie. He had no lines. And wasn't he supposed to play Frank Miller, the bad guy? Not Frank Miller, but uh, another one. Yeah. Or do you want to get to alternative casting? Or, oh wait, so, no. Before that, yeah. I want to say that um, um, the other thing about the open of the movie. There's something else interesting about that. What was it? Um. Wasn't the music? What was it? Um, I've lost it. The credits? No. The tree he was on? No. Um, it's gone. It's a Fuck. it's a salient, deeply felt point that now and they're not going to get. They're poor they're not listeners. Gonna get it. They're going to live. Know. They're going to have a. And I'm going to remember it tonight. I'm going to go up at like mind. four. Oh, I remember. Um, but I don't. Your poor I wife. don't remember what it was. We haven't talked about the CTU or CCU, but in this case, the CTU. I, I love uh, that I can now cast. I love that I can now rely upon you well, to bring it, forward the Columbo Cinematic Universe. Columbo Cinematic Universe. Ah, one more thing. Honestly, I mean, the rest of the cast is fantastic. You know, you got the major from uh, MASH. Everybody's fantastic in it. And even to the, the smallest roles, including a name that I had never heard of, Howland Chamberlain. The hotel clerk. Very creepy character. All of the small characters in this, everybody really seems to have an inner life. What was also interesting is he is one of the characters like Lloyd Bridges, or I think more so than Lloyd Bridges. Howland Chamberlain was uh, blacklisted. Right. Uh, after this and didn't work for many, mm-hmm. many years. He was somebody d- uh, directly touched by this. Heroes of the blacklist. In reading, I would add Kirk Douglas seemed to have acquitted himself quite well as an ally and friend going through this era and particularly Spartacus, putting his name and fame and credibility on the line for the person he wanted to write the film. Right. But the one thing that I did want to say about Thomas Mitchell, Thomas Mitchell, who plays the He's mayor, mayor. Yeah. and a friend of Kane's. Yeah is also probably better known, I would think, as Uncle Billy in It's a Wonderful Life. Right. And what's fascinating about this is that, to bring that connection, is that this movie is almost like a reverse version of It's a Wonderful Life. <laughs> right. There, the whole thing, he was so lucky to have all his friends and all the good deeds he had done comes back to him, whereas here, Will Kane's good deeds are the exact opposite. You got nothing. But you got nothing and nobody, Will Kane. Thomas Mitchell... I don't know if you know, this is, like I said, not the CCU, but the CTU. Hmm. He played Lieutenant Columbo in Prescription Murder. 
which was a stage adaptation of the first script for Columbo, which wow. actually started starred Will Breen. There were a bunch wow. of other actors who played Columbo You're before blowing my mind right Peter now. Falk did. For the CBS Mystery Theater, they produced Prescription Murder. Then the writers did an adaptation of it for the stage, which had Thomas Mitchell in it, which was doing an out-of-town tryout. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he died before it got to wow. Broadway. So, so never he could have been... He could have been Columbo. He might have been Columbo, yes. And then actually when they were casting Columbo for NBC's Wheel of Mysteries or whatever it was that- <laughs> Wheel of Mysteries. <laughs> that, uh, when they were casting, they wanted Lee J. Cobb. Sure. Uh, but but he was like, what the, no. What the- oh, just one more thing. <laughs> but that was very interesting to see that Thomas Mitchell had played Columbo on stage and died. From it. And died from, well, not from playing Columbo. That wasn't the cause of his death, was it? <laughs> uh, you Wait, know, I haven't he, seen the Did court. he die on stage in the no, role? No, not on stage, oh, but it was, was like say. during the That was going to be the tour. So John Wayne, through the reading and the making of High Noon, emerges as ever a troublesome, <laughs> hard to pin down, often fucking evil character yeah. with these flashes of humanity and connection amidst all of that betrayal and overt patriotism used as a hammer and his sort of fascism, really, yeah, in, yeah. in defense of American mores and ideals as defined by, by him. himself. <laughs> However, it's funny because during this era is when he gave the famous Playboy interview yes. that recently went wildfire on the internet to say like, hey, wow, turns out John Wayne was a piece of shit. Yeah, what um, a shock. And he says all these horrible things about pretty much everyone. Yet, he had this interesting relationship with a lot of the people involved in the making of this film, including Stanley Kramer, including Carl Foreman, including Gary Cooper. Gary Cooper, whose career very much needed the shot in the arm, and he won an Academy Award for High Noon as Best Actor, and he was not able to accept it in person. So guess who came out to accept the award? In the absence of the winter, John Wayne will accept the award for Gary Cooper. Gentlemen, I'm glad to see that they're giving this to a man who is not only most deserving, but has conducted himself throughout his years in our business in a manner that we can all be proud of him. Coop and I have been friends hunting and fishing for more years than I like to remember. He's one of the nicest fellows I know. I don't know anybody any nicer. And our kinship goes further than that friendship because we both fell off our horses into pictures together. Now that I'm through being such a good sport, spouted all this good sportsmanship, I'm gonna go back and find my business manager, an agent, producer, and three name writer, and find out why I didn't get High Noon instead of Cooper. <laughs> I can't fire any of these very expensive fellas, but I can at least run my 1930 Chevrolet into one of their big black new Cadillacs. <laughs> Pretty good Oscar acceptance speech. And he delivers it well. He delivers it really well for, you know, he would never have been caught dead being in this movie. I mean, he was aware of what this movie was about long before it ever came out. No, Yeah, he hated it. He hated it. And in fact, what's the movie he made in answer to High Noon? Rio Bravo. Which is like the total opposite hero ideal. High Noon is to Southern Man as Rio Bravo is to Sweet Home Alabama. Chris. That's what I was thinking. Wait a minute. Let me just make sure your analogy holds up. Do it again. High Noon is to the Neil, not Neil Diamond, Neil Young song, (laughs) Southern Man. He's talking about Southern people. Southern Man better keep your head. Don't fall. 
and Rio Bravo was made in response to High Noon in the same way that yeah. Marsha Tucker Band or whatever did Sweet Home Alabama in response. The snarky response would be to correct their grammar. <laughs> so amazing that John Wayne accepts Gary Cooper's Oscar, even though he really disparaged the film in print and in interviews. And went out of his way to, I think, keep it from being made. He was pressuring Stanley Kramer to distance himself yeah. from Corman. What I'm taking away from the whole story is it's instructive to read about Hollywood and the Red Scare, such as it was, because in a time like right now, where there's so little nuance and so little appreciation of the messy middle of human nature and I like reading about this time when it was really complicated. It wasn't, it, it was another time when everyone was asked to be black or white. Yet, this book does a really good job kind of tracing everyone's path mm -hmm. and is unstinting in both its blame for people who, like John Wayne, kind of used it as a cudgel, yet had these moments of compassion. And I think actually went on to work on films that Stanley Kramer and or Carl Foreman were involved with. But the movie itself, you can completely be unaware of any of that and, and watch this yes. as a, an incredible 84 minutes of film and a truly great performance from Gary Cooper yes. and everyone else. Any alternative casting you want to get into before we move on uh, to some of our other there's segments? There's not too much. Put that one back. Grace Kelly was attached before Gary Cooper was. But for that role, for the role of Kane, there were a bunch of people considered, including Henry Fonda, who had already been graylisted, which mm -hmm. is part of the reason why he didn't get it. Yep. John Wayne, they had considered, but because of the yep. politics, he never would have done it. Kirk Douglas, who had been in that production company's champion, which had sort of made that company a few years before. Right. All these were people who were considered, and they even kind of were resistant to Gary Cooper because of his age mm. and everything that you were saying. But he liked the role and petitioned for it and even was willing to work for half pay. So he, he knew he what did. it was. Exactly. He understood. And to his credit, he allowed himself to be photographed without vanity because he had not been filmed in such a way as to show the stark lines in his face from a lifetime of hard living and smoking and right. injury and what have you. But he looks a lot older than 50. Yeah. I mean, I'm 50. And I don't have the lines in my face that Gary Cooper has, right? No. And you're not wearing makeup. And you're not just being kind. I'm not just being kind. Well, it's interesting. One of the things I like about Cooper, and it's one of the things that I like about movies, at a certain point as an actor, you get to bring something to the screen that's more than the role you're embodying. And you cannot watch Gary Cooper in this movie without an awareness of this arc of the human being's life. Because when you've been in the pictures for a long time, we think we know an actor. I like that about Hollywood, like about movies that you can see. These actors, I think about some of the French New Wave films, the Jean-Pierre Melville films where you're seeing like Alino Ventura or these other French character actors weathered and grizzled and you're sort of aware of more than just the character they're playing. The only other Kane person that I wanted to mention was Gregory Peck. Mm. who turned the role down, which he later said was the biggest regret of his career right. because of his own politics, that he would, was very sympathetic yeah. to it politically. He would have been good. Uh, yeah, though he himself says he doesn't think he would have been as good. Yeah. The only other alternative cast I wanted to talk about was Harvey Pell, the role played by Lloyd Bridges. And his fantastic hair. I'm if you have hair like that, him. get thee to Hollywood. And eyes like that. He, I had forgotten because I think of him from Airplane. I didn't really use a He was a handsome young man. handsome guy. Yeah. Um, but Lee Van Cleef, also a very handsome guy, oh, was originally was, okay. hired to play that role. 
However, Stanley Kramer, another reason to kick him in the <laughs> shins, decided that <laughs> Lee Van Cleef's nose was too hooked, mm. which made him look like a villain and told him to get it fixed. And he refused. Van Cleef refused, and Lloyd Bridges got the part. And Lee Van Cleef then went on to work for 60 more years <laughs> with, <laughs> with his hooked Same nose. nose. Uh, to Stanley Kramer's credit, he did, you know, use him for something else. He's much better in the role that he's cast in. I think that Lloyd's visage is perfect for the role that he ended yeah. up in. Oh, and Ben Miller, one of the Miller boys, Peter Graves was considered. Ah. I was watching a documentary and they literally showed the screenwriter's notes. Uh-huh. So you could see like names that he'd written down and pointing to different characters and stuff. And like a few, like Lee Van Cleef was up for a few different roles. Right. Stuff, but one of them for Ben Miller was Peter Graves. Last other, I think you'll enjoy this. Ben Miller ended up being played by Sheb Woolley, who a lot of people would have known for having recorded the novelty song Flying Purple People Eater. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, Matt, you got to play a little Flying Purple People Eater. That's like part of everybody's childhood. It was a one-eyed, one-horned, flying purple people eater. One-eyed, one-horned, flying purple people eater. One-eyed, one-horned, flying purple people eater. Sure looks strange to me. Not only has he got to play that, you know what else Sheb Willie is famous for? Do you know what the Wilhelm scream is? The Wilhelm scream? No. The Wilhelm scream is a very famous sound effect. On, on the media, they did a whole long story about it. Okay. So it's a man gets eaten by alligators, how it was labeled. But it's this funny scream. and It's a man's scream or a woman's scream? It's a man's scream. Let's listen to it. I've got it right here. Ah! That's the Wilhelm scream. Yeah. Ah! It was recorded for the film Distant Drums and labeled as Man Getting Bit by an Alligator and He Screamed. It was nicknamed The Wilhelm after it was used when a character named Private Wilhelm got an arrow in the leg in the movie The Charge at Feather River. Wilhelm! Yeah, I'll just fill my pipe! This is believed to be the third film to use the sound. And it's been used up until now, like in the sound design. In Star Wars, they have it. Certainly in Indiana Jones. I remember seeing it in Captain America. All of these movies. And it's Sheb Woolley who actually had done the screen. I love it. As of July 2018, it has been used 386 times. Who gets paid? Uh, he doesn't get residuals for every time that is used. I would love to hear that on the media. That's a class. That's a great on the media subject. Oh, yeah. Right? Oh, it's, it's great. I love that. We now have a toll-free telephone number. That's and right. And we would like listeners to call us. Let me log in so I can figure out what our number is because I purposely chose a good one. And what we want you to do is something like call us and leave us a message. Do I need to be That's more it. specific than that, Chris? Yeah. You could say anything you want. You anyway. can have suggestions of what we should do, shouldn't do. You Tell know. us a movie that you've got to watch all the way through whenever it's on. Things that you hate in movies. I would think that something we would have fun with is if people said, I want you guys to address this trope and let us find some examples to say, we got this great voicemail from a listener and they mentioned this filmic trope. Call us toll free 855-755-5322. That's 855-755-5322. That is very memorable. Yeah. 855-755-5322. Yeah. Um, now, Chris is going to record a clever voicemail thing so that when you call, you're going to hear him and he's going to figure out how to do it. Yeah, there's value added. All right, Chris, would you like to move on to headlines? Yes. Headlines. I only have one for you. Great. You know, I love stories of both man's technological efforts coming back to haunt man. 
And I also love stories of, um, what's the phrase I coined when the animals reach? The animalarity? Yeah, the animalarity. This was from Smithsonian, so you know it's true. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, that's a brand you trust. Let me put on a tie. So the headline is, text messages sent by roaming eagles bankrupt scientific study. An eagle named Min spent months out of range before reappearing in Iran and sending hundreds of expensive SMS text messages. A team of Russian researchers set out to track endangered steppe eagles using a device that sends the bird's location via SMS text. Sure. And they knew they would occasionally lose track of the birds when they flew into regions with little or no <laughs> cellular coverage. But going off the grid isn't a big deal because when that happens, the messages are sent once the eagles fly back into range. Sure. Well, what they didn't plan for was one eagle had a taste for adventure and flew all over the world. <laughs> and when Min reappeared, the eagle reappeared in Iran, where apparently the roaming rates are incredibly high <laughs> for text messages. So they got a massive phone bill. He sent hundreds of text messages priced at about 77 cents each, five times the typical price on the Russian network. It wiped out the project's budget in one fell swoop. Oh, that's fantastic. I mean, it's terrible. I mean, I'm sure it'll set humanity back, but it's pretty funny. Then... After the eagle did that, a team of rats driving little cars rolled up, <laughs> the eagle jumped in back, and they rolled out of town. That's all I've got for you on headlines. Oh, that's awesome. Um, I have uh, a bomb squad to do. I didn't care for it. So bomb squad, it's, we're now, I think uh, we've released three episodes with the bomb squad feature. Yeah. And so far, we are... Well, one for one or one for three, because the other two haven't come out yet. Right. But Motherless Brooklyn, the Edward Norton directed, written, and certainly starring and certainly produced by feature was a $26 million film. Yes. And it grossed $3 million on opening. $4 million so, cumulative. Word of mouth. Flop. Word of mouth, guys. So a long tail. It's not about pointing out anything other than if you're going to step into the arena. Gotta, Which I don't think it did, right? Like Edward it, Norton did not send you an email <laughs> suggesting that. No, but, you know, if you're going to put out a, a movie trailer and oh. we're going to encounter it, <laughs> it's got to be good. Yes. And if it's not good, we're here to call you on it from our admittedly non-risky perch. But on the other hand, it didn't do in itself any favors with that trailer. Now, the trailer I'm going to play this week is a little Christmas themed. And maybe this will be out of place. I don't know. Maybe I should save that. Should I save? For Christmas? No. No. I mean, is it'll it be too late? Is it going to be? Is it the one Henry Golding and uh, uh, Game of Thrones woman? Because that just opened. Did it just open? This is very polarizing, and you're probably very excited to take a look at this one. This is the George Michael Layden trailer for Last Christmas, which stars huge star Amelia Clark oh, and a huge Henry Jack Golding. Look, okay, it's not my fault. I bet nothing's ever your fault, is it, darling? You have thrown away your life working in some silly Christmas shop. Baby, don't cry. Hey, Elf! This is my little helper. I have nicknamed her Lazy the Elf because she appears never to work. Father, don't let Christmas get me out of here. What? Jesus, where'd you come from? Well, what are you looking at? I'll be a falcon. Damn it. I think you just pooed in your eye. Yeah, I think so. It's good luck, you know. What is? Getting pooed on by bed. I'm busy, you're weird. Goodbye. You've missed five doctor's appointments. Mum is scared. So, uh, tell me about sleep. She never sleeps. Exercise? Religious Not at all. Alcohol? Oh, oh she's drinking while. like the pirate. Oh, okay, fine. Thank you, doctor. Thank you so much for your time. Let's go, Mum. 
Whoa! <gasps> you! Again. What do you mean again? Did you follow me here? Are elves always so cynical? Yes. Relentlessly, these are dark times. I'm Tom. Kate? Last Christmas. Here we are. This is the bit where you murder me. So what is it that you do? I sing. Oh, that's amazing. Anyway, boring, boring, boring. I'm not bored. You are so strange. <laughs> where are you going? We're in there. Well, you're not homeless. No, I volunteer here. <laughs> Why didn't you just get Saint tattooed on your forehead? You were great at your job when you started, but now it's like you don't care anymore. Hi. Oh, hi. Hi. Can I help? I'm a mess. I was really sick and I nearly died. I don't tell people because they get weird, but I don't think you'll get weird. No. I'm just scared all the time. And they just expect me to be normal and get on with life. There's no such thing as normal. You're just being a human being. She was sick, Chris. That's why she's so brittle and rough. And, well, do you know and, and do you know the away. twist? Do you know what the She dies. That's why it's called Last Christmas. No. No? I'm always a sucker for hearing stories of like, oh my gosh, you know this movie that supposedly has a huge twist? Uh-huh. You'll never believe how dumb the twist is. <laughs> I did read a thing that was saying She faked the illness. Let me try and guess the twist. Yeah. Well, because it can't be spoiler. We are going to spoil this movie. It has a huge twist. I think it's already open. No, nobody cares. You never know. I mean, I'm sure you read Amelia, about it. It exists. Online. Amelia Clark could be a big listener to this. Amelia, if you are, I'm sorry, but you're better than this. I mean, look, maybe it's a good but movie yeah, and a go bad for, trailer. Yeah, I love a great rom-com. I do. I don't. Yeah, well, I do. So I'm all about watching like what's the Christmas one with Hugh Grant and all the different stories. Christmas, actually. Uh, love Actually. Love Actually. Like, I love Love Actually. Well, I don't love it. I mean, I'll watch it, but, you know, we've talked before about my complicated right. relationship to it. Okay, so, so yeah, amongst the, the available twist. twist. So then at this point, the trailer takes a maudlin turn. She's in a hospital bed. She has tubes. All of a sudden, all the reasons for her self-destructive, brittle, keep-away behavior are revealed. It's because I was very sick and I may yet die. So I'm going to presume... Well, spoiler, we're all going to die. ...that the twist is, A, she does die. Okay. Then B, uh, it was just a mix-up of paperwork and she was never actually sick. No. Okay. Uh, C, he dies. No. Okay. D. Well, oh, but really? no, Short answer, no. Their brother answer. and sister. No. <laughs> He's the son of the angry woman who she works for at the L store. No. Maybe they came out with a actual twist that I that is impressive if no, I can't think of it. it's not impressive. Okay, tell uh, me what it is. Well, here, before that, do you remember the movie like Six and a Half Pounds or something like that with About Will Smith a couple years head? ago? No, you, that's the <laughs> weight of the brain is like two pounds. Oh, yeah. What was that movie? It was a Will Smith movie. And right. again, it also had like, a, don't reveal Very, the twist. And this is the first time that I was like, I got to read it. I will cut Wikipedia. And it turned out he killed himself in a way, though, where all his organs could be donated oh, to right. all of these people that he'd been. First of all, the whole movie is him pestering people and like being a jerk to them to like test if they're good enough for his organs. <laughs> so wait, he's twist. going out and finding he's like. He knows you need an organ. So he's going to go out and, and he knows he's dying. So he's going to go out and interact with you oh, in order to find out no, if you're organ worthy. He's, he's going to commit suicide. He's he's just self-loathing. He's also, uh, he's also he's, like a twin and his twin was actually a good guy. You know, it's the. Oh, uh, yeah. So this, so this is called Last Christmas. Like said, yeah. the George Michael thing. Last Christmas, I gave you my heart. That is the twist. That actually Henry Golding is already dead. He died last Christmas. And he donated his heart you in fucking, her chest. You're kidding. And so he's, this is, it's like a fight club thing. Please, so all the scenes that they have together is her actually just being alone. You're joking. No. You're joking. No, no literally you're Look joking. It up. Look Chris, it up. that is not true. Look it up. The most inventive thing about it is the fact that they say so literal to the, um, 
What is there source the material? Last, what last the, the the George Michael song last Christmas? I gave That's you my the whole heart. source material. I gave That's you it. my heart. I, I'm I'm dumbfounded. Um, last Christmas. Here, sadly, then. it does not deliver. Wow. If that's true, Chris, that's... And again, we're not even talking about the, the Emma Thompson's then uh, I get accent. No, then I get nothing that I want out of a rom-com. Yeah, she's like, I want them to be rom-com. together. <laughs> like, yeah, well, so in the end, she's alone and he never... Yeah, that's, but she learned stuff and she's still alive, I guess. Or I don't know. Through his heart beating inside of her body, which is creepy and kind of weird. Well, <laughs> I'd call wow. it a miracle of modern science. I don't know whether to be more impressed or less impressed with the movie now. <laughs> I'm really a field here. I don't know what to do. Yeah, uh, I have seen reactions to this movie so far, so I I, I feel pretty. Is this out? Be, yeah, I think it opened this week. Oh my god. Okay, we don't have to do anything else. That's all I got. I was, <laughs> it's four thirteen. Hey, four thirteen. Uh, seven more minutes will be four twenty. <laughs> Boom! Yeah. Whoa. Hey, Boomer. What's that? How do you oh. use that tree? How do you use that meme? Uh, okay, Boomer. Okay, Boomer. That's like for me. I'm not a Boomer though. I'm too. I'm too. Cool. No, boomers are older than me. <laughs> yeah. I think the cutoff for being a boomer is you're born like before 1965. Also, you know, I was also mention, you know, there's a sequel to High Noon, but it's not called Higher Noon. It's another dad joke. Well, no, Elmore Leonard wrote it with Lee Majors as Kane, and it's called like High Noon 2, The Return of Will Kane. Is that but true? I was hoping to be called High Noon 2, Higher Noon. <laughs> when you write these out, this is what I imagine. You're home alone <laughs> in your in your rocking chair. With like a knit blanket over your oh, knees and legs. Please, I wish I had a knit blanket. And, and you're actually giggling out loud alone in your apartment as you type. Is that pretty close to what happens? No, 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 no. 420 to Yuma, I did giggle at. Or is there like a single tear <laughs> running down a cheek? No. Until next week, Kane can count himself lucky he got out when he did because the system can do strange things to a person. You expect me to take the knife and do the job myself? You left it. Ha 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 ha!